not every day that a zookeeper went to prison for murder for hire. There are more captive tigers in the U.S. than there are in the wild throughout the world. Animal people are nuts, man. They're all crazy. I'm sure y'all got a story to tell. You know, during the filming, of course, they asked me about Joe Exotic. Joe and a lot of these other people had been threatening to kill me for years. Before you bring me down, it is my belief that you will stop breathing. I got one call from Jackie Thompson. Um, she contacted me and she said that Joe had tried to hire her husband to kill me. And then another woman contacted me and said that Joe had tried to hire her to kill me. So by this time now, they've got two hitmen that he has now conspired with, and they felt like they had a big enough case that they'd be able to bring him in. Carol Baskin killed her husband, whacked him. Can't convince me that it didn't happen. Fed him to tigers, they snack it. What's happening? Carol Baskin. Welcome to the Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Dodge. And I'm the CEO and founder of the Bournemouth Sevens Festival and the revolutionary event crowd, our new online events course. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. So if you want to hear more like this, make sure you subscribe, leave us a glowing review, and you can follow me on Instagram at Dodge Woodall. I reply to every single message. In March 2020, as the world was advised to stay indoors, a cultural phenomenon was born. The Netflix documentary series Tiger King was an instant hit, spawning countless memes and making stars of Joe Exotic and Carol Baskin. Carol had lived a life of conservation and animal protection, stemming from childhood fascination with wild animals. But following the sudden disappearance of her husband and an ongoing feud with the outlandish Joe Exotic, controversy seemed to follow her everywhere. She faced lawsuits, death threats, and even accusation that she murdered her husband and fed him to the tigers. So I wanted to get her side of the story and find the truth behind the Tiger King. This is the eventful life of Carol Baskin. Carol, welcome to the show. Well, hey, all you cool cats and kittens. Thank you for having me, Dodge. Good, 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 good. Looking forward to this one, Carol. Just let's roll all the way back the years. Where did you grow up and... Where did your love from Cats and Kittens come from? Parade Magazine asked me recently to dig out some old photos. And my mother sent me over some uh, photo albums, you know, the old kind where you stick the pictures in the book. And I pulled out this picture of me, one of my first days home from the hospital and a cat and the cat on the back, it said that the cat's name was Tiger. And so I think it was kind of set in stone from the day that I came home from the hospital that I would love cats. Wonderful. And where, where did you grow up? I was born in San Antonio, Texas, but I grew up mostly in Florida and West Virginia. Lovely. And what was the what was the route for you then as a kid? Obviously, having the love of cats and kittens. Where did that route take you? Was it in, was it in your teens? Was it in your early twenties that you would you fell in love with this and wanted to make a, a career from it? 
actually when I was eight years old, my mother and my grandmother both raised me. And my grandmother insisted that a proper young lady would have a pedigreed poodle as a pet, not a (laughs) stray alley cat, which is what I had. And she made me take my cat and kittens to the shelter. And she said they were going to get this wonderful new life. And I discovered very quickly after that, that most of the domestic cats and kittens that are taken to shelters die there. And so it became kind of a lifelong mission for me to end the killing of healthy cats and kittens in shelters due to aggressive spay and neuter programs. And so, as you can imagine, that led me to being in veterinary offices a lot. And by the time I I left home at the age of 15, and then by the time I was 17, um, when I was in a vet's office, the vet had a bobcat that had been hit by a car. And these cats, you know, the vets can fix them up in 20 or 30 minutes, but then you're talking months of rehab to get them fighting ready to go back to the wild. Mm-hmm. And so they asked if I would take the cat because I was dealing with feral cats all the time anyway. And so I did that and I loved that. And it's still my favorite part of what we do. Of all of the cats who come to us for rescue, the only ones that we're allowed to release back to the wild are the ones who were born in the wild. So that would be in, in America here, that would be native Florida bobcats and florida panthers wow and when you're talking bobcats and panthers you're talking big cats here the florida panthers probably about 80 pounds max whereas the same dna in our mountain lands out west would be maybe 230 pounds and then florida bobcats are usually 15 to 20 pounds not much bigger than a domestic cat but (laughs) way more fierce (laughs) um and in the northern united states they can get up to 40 45 pounds and that that journey you've been on then have you have you set up your own rescue and and your own sanctuary and what age did you start saying right this is for me i'm going to really go for this in 1992 don lewis and i my husband at the time went to an auction we were buying some llamas and the guy came in with a six-month-old bobcat. He said that his wife had gotten her as a kitten, didn't want her as a pet anymore. And I'm thinking, who makes pets on bobcats? That's the most vicious animal on the planet. And so the guy next to me started bidding on her. And I leaned over and I said, when that cat grows up, she's going to tear your face off. <laughs> and he said, I'm a taxidermist. I'm just going to club her in the head in the parking lot and make a den decoration out of her. So I started crying and Don started bidding and we probably paid more for that bobcat than anybody's ever paid for a bobcat, but she wasn't going to die in the parking lot. How much did you pay Carol roughly? $780 for about a $200 cat. Wow. I, I couldn't release her because she had been declawed by the former owner trying to make a pet out of her and she had been born in captivity. And so we started looking around, trying to find a a mate for her that she could play with because she was beating the snot out of our German shepherd, even though the dog was way bigger than her. They're just fierce. And so this guy said he'd sell us some kittens, but we had to come to Minnesota. And when we got to Minnesota, it turned out to be a fur farm. I didn't even know people wore cat fur, but um, I saw this huge pile of dead cats in the corner and they had just taken this little piece of belly fur. And that's because that's why it takes like 20 bobcats to make a small coat is because they only use that white spotted fur on the belly. And so I, I was just, I was in shock. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I asked the guy, was there this big of a market for these cats as pets? Cause they're horrible pets. And he said, oh, no, this is a fur farm and whatever we can't sell as pets, we'll slaughter next year for their fur. And so I started crying again. And Don said, how much for every cat here? And we came home with 56 (laughs) top cats and links. (laughs) 
<laughs> is that right? 56 in one hit. Where did you yes. put them all? Um, I lived on five acres, which is actually where I live now. And we built cages as fast as we could. Yeah. And then we had a 40 acre parcel nearby about five miles away that we built Big Cat Rescue. And so that's where we still are. We've added more land there. There's 67 acres there now. But um, as we could build more bigger cages, that's what we did. Wow. And what year did you start uh, the Big Cat Rescue? We rescued Windsong, that first bobcat, in 1992. The rescue of 56 cats came in 1993. We rescued 28 more bobcats and lynx from a fur farm in 94 and then 22 the next year in 95 and by that time we had gotten all of the big cats out of all of the fur farms in the united states with the agreement that the farmers not kill cats again for their fur they were still killing foxes and mink but not cats and then i started working on the canadian fur farms trying to get the cats out of there unbelievable so you've rescued 100 cats in the u.s and then you went into the into the canadian market to see how many you could save there too how many did you bring over from Canada into, into the U.S.? I'm thinking it was probably somewhere between a dozen and 20. And that was 1997 was the last year of bringing in those Canadian cats. And that was the year that Don disappeared. And so, as you know, from Tiger King, all hell broke loose at that point. And, um, you know, his family came in, tried to take over the business along with the secretary. They reduced me to a, a allowance of $150,000 a year when our expenses were over $350,000 a year. And now my expenses are over three and a half million dollars a year. You said that Don disappeared. Where did he disappear to? You know, for years, I didn't know for sure. And then after Tiger King 2 came out last November, the Department of Homeland Security, they had produced a document from them saying that Don Lewis was alive and well in Costa Rica at least five years after I saw him last. So apparently that's where he disappeared to. What did he do? He was running the cat farm, uh, running the big cat rescue with yourself. And all of a sudden one day he just disappeared. He was gone. Yeah. One morning he said, please get the, or he told me to get the truck ready because he was going to be taking it down to Costa Rica and it had a bad clutch. And so he asked me to have our mechanic be sure that the truck was going to be ready for the trip the next morning. And that was the last I ever saw of him. How mad is that? Yeah. Wow. Were you just carrying on? Were you carrying on with the with the big cat rescue as a sanctuary and saying, right, we need to turn this into a, a full on business now with more staff, more cats, more cages, more everything? Well, actually, it had been more of like a hobby for us. It was a way because of our real estate business, which had been very lucrative. It had given us a way of giving back and doing something good in the world. But after I was reduced to half of my operating income, all of a sudden I had to figure out, well, what am I going to do if I'm not allowed to use my real estate money to keep running this the way we have been? So we had started it in 92. This was now 97. Um, how, where's that money going to come yeah. from? And so I had to start asking for donations and getting involved as a nonprofit and doing all kinds of things that I had never had no experience doing to try and keep the thing funded. And thankfully, 11 years after we started it, it actually could pay for itself. And then it's been able to support itself ever since then. And how has it grown over the years, Carol, in terms of you needed 300 grand a year and now you need $3 million, well, $3 million a year to keep it going? How many full-time staff have, did it start with and have you, how has it grown into? So uh, back when Don was around, we didn't have any staff. 
and we were doing it all through our, you know, we had a real estate business and we had people that worked for us. And so they were doing things like the cage maintenance and volunteers were coming and taking care of the animals. And so one of the, I think the smartest thing that we did was we continued that um, format where all of the animal care has always been a hundred percent done by volunteers, even our veterinary care our vets have almost always been doing it as uh, pro bono or for free. And what I love about that is, and we have anywhere from 80 to 110 volunteers at any one time. Um, and we've had the same two vets for one for probably 15 years and the other one about 10 years. And we pay them every once in a while, like if it's, if they've got a lot of expense involved in something or the suture kits or things like that, yeah. you know, of course we're paying for that. But the nice thing about having all of the animal care done by extremely well-trained volunteers who have to go through 50 different classes and they have to pass different certifications in order to progress is that those people are doing it because they love the love animals. Yeah. It's not just a paycheck to them. Yeah. And the great thing was that when COVID hit and we had to let, we had, we started to answer your question. We had three paid staff. So um, I very quickly hired a person to manage the volunteers. I hired somebody to manage our gift shop so that that would yeah. create an income to support the cats. And then I hired somebody to be a videographer. And so those were my first three paid people outside of my real estate business yeah. that I paid to work. And by 2020, when COVID hit, we had 22 staff. And all of the staff were paid to do things that volunteers don't want to do, like managing the donors or going out to uh, schools and teaching at schools or administrative type jobs, no animal jobs. And so when I had to let go of half of my staff mm. due to COVID, that didn't affect our animal care a bit yeah. because that was still all being done by volunteers. So I was really thankful that we had that kind of a program, which was kind of unique to us yeah. in the industry, I think. Lovely. So just before COVID hit, obviously we all know the documentary come about. How did the document, how did you get, <laughs> how did you get involved in the documentary? How did it all work? Tell me, tell, tell me this story. We work with the media for free all the time. So anytime somebody would come to us and say a local news channel and it's Halloween and they want some fun pictures of cats chasing pumpkins, or if it's, you know, Gasparilla and they want to do some pirate theme thing or whatever, or people working on documentaries would come to us and say, we're doing this documentary on whatever. Then we were thrilled to be able to work with them to get the message of the plight of the big cat out there and to talk about why they shouldn't be in cages to begin with. And so when this crew came to us, they said they were working on something called, it's either Stolen World or Stolen Wildlife. And they said it was going to be the blackfish for big cats. Did you get to see blackfish? No, I didn't. No. So that was the program. It was a documentary that aired on CNN about keeping orcas in swimming pools like SeaWorld. Yeah, yeah. And the public hated it. Yeah. They were like, no way are we going to support this industry of taking these orcas from their families and keeping them in captivity just so we can see stupid yeah. shows. Yeah. And so when they said it was going to be the blackfish for big cats, we were all about that. And we worked with them for five years telling them, you know, who all of the players were in this industry, who the good guys were, who the bad guys were. And at the same time, we were working with documentarians who were working on a program called Hidden Tiger, uh, which is an excellent program talking about how we're losing the tiger in the wild. 
we were working on the conservation game, which has won all kinds of awards. And it talks about how the big cat problem started in America with people like Jack Hanna, Dave Salmoni, and all of these faux conservation experts dressed up in safari hats, carrying tigers onto late night shows, how that created this demand for people to want to pay to pet a cute little cub. And so we were working with all of them simultaneously. And then Netflix came out in 2020 with this teaser for something called Tiger King. And we contacted everybody. We're like, who's working on that show? (laughs) What is that about? And it was like crickets, you know? So we sat down and binge watched it just like everybody else did. And at the end of it, my husband and I looked at each other because now we realize, okay, it's the stolen world, people. And we're like, well, that was a missed opportunity. And that was all I thought of it for about the first five minutes until my phone started ringing and it rang every five minutes for the next three months with people screaming obscenities at me, how much they hated me because I had put their hero in jail. The hero being the guy who had allegedly hired hitmen to kill me, the the guy who walked out and shot five healthy tigers in the face because he needed to make room for some tigers from the circus that were going to pay for boarding space. That was their hero based on the way the producers of Tiger King manipulated the audience. And so I sat down and I actually watched it eight times trying to figure out how on earth did people see this and actually believe this clearly misogynistic narrative. And it just, it was stunning to me that people wouldn't bother to do five minutes worth of internet research to find out that Don wasn't a millionaire when I met him. I'm the person who built the real estate business. I lost most of it due to all of that, but I've built it all back since then. So it was obviously me. And all of the horrible things that people would say about, you know, how I was breeding these animals and I was just like these zoos and anybody who has watched us online and we are so transparent. We have live webcams everywhere. We do live walkabouts every day where you can ask anything you want. You can see anything you want. Um, Before COVID, you could come and visit and see anything you wanted. And people didn't bother to do any of that research. They just believed what they were spoon fed and it was miserable for months. I'm sure. So your life before that was all happy with cats enjoying all of a sudden the documentary come about. What was your life like before compared to after the documentary came? You know, it was really kind of a perfect storm because COVID caused us to close our gates on March the 15th. And then I think Tiger King came out on March the 20th. Yeah. Of 2020. And we're still closed because now what we've discovered in the past year or so is that these exotic cats are very susceptible to COVID. And a lot of the zoos that have opened back up now have their cats dying from COVID because people coughing on them. So we don't want to open our cats up to that kind of, um, peril. Mm. So we've stayed closed, even though that's costing us over a million dollars a year and lost revenue. So what, so how did it all kick off then? Were you actually talked into becoming onto a Netflix documentary? Did you know what you're getting into or not? Or were you just recorded and all of a sudden it was slotted into this documentary? Yeah, they had actually along the way, they had shown me their sizzle reels and they showed me their end product. And it was everything that they had told me it was going to be. It was this documentary that documented all of these horrible things that were being done to these animals and what the animal protection groups were doing to try and end that and what I'm trying to do to end that. And that was 
I'm thinking that that was like the end of 2018 that they um, showed me that finished product. And they said that they were trying to sell it to CNN. And then they wrote back and said, well, CNN decided they're not going to buy it. So we're going to see if we can sell it to Netflix. Well, that was the only reference I ever heard to Netflix. And apparently once they sold it to Netflix, they decided to just completely re-edit it because it has, I mean, I could show, I have a copy of what they sent me and it has (laughs) no resemblance whatsoever to what people saw in Tiger King. So you didn't even know that Tiger King was going to come on as a documentary on Netflix at all? No, no. In fact, um, when they did, you know, during the filming, of course, they asked me about Joe Exotic because he's, you know, one of the people out there that's exploiting these big cats and probably on my list of the top six that were doing what I believe is the most damage to tigers as far as breeding, using them, and then discarding them. And so when they asked me questions about him, I was, I was cautious about it because I always, you know, they, they seem to want me to say nasty things yeah. about him. And I've never done that with any of these people. I don't, I don't attack them for their personal lives. I don't attack them. I, what I want to change is their behavior and to end the abuse, not to ruin their names in any way. And they just kept asking and asking and asking. And so I was like, you know, why on earth are you focusing on this? And they're like, oh, he'll just be like, you know, five minutes in this yeah. and that's all. So I had absolutely no idea that they were going to turn it into the dumpster fire that it turned out to be. What was it? that Joe Exotic was doing that you didn't agree with? Breeding breeding cats for life in cages. So I don't believe that any wild cat belongs in a cage. And we have never bred lions or tigers or ligers. But um, back in the 90s, when Don was around, we bred some of the more rare cats like ocelots. And we actually worked with the Association of Zoos and Aquariums on a release program that they had where they were going to take these captive-born ocelots and release them back into Texas because they used to live in Texas, but they've been completely wiped out by hunters. And what we learned during that process, and this was, again, way back in the 90s, was that the cats have instinctual, um, they have regional instincts. And so even though these ocelots look the same, everything seemed the same about them. When they released them into Texas, they were immediately killed by rattlesnakes. And the reason for that is all of the ocelots that were in captivity came from Central and South America, where their primary diet are non-venomous snakes. So as soon as those cats had the chance to be free, they were like something in their brain clicked and they're like, snakes, that's our favorite food. We're going to go do that. And in Texas, they're rattlesnakes. And so it wiped out the entire program. So that was when we learned that there's really no way that these cats can ever be bred in captivity and released to the wild. And none of the cats that are in private hands are purebred, so they wouldn't be beneficial to any breeding program anywhere. So the thing that I have against people like Joe Exotic and Doc Antle and Mario Tabro and all of the guys that you saw in Tiger King is that for them to do cub petting with the cubs, they have to produce hundreds of those cubs every year because they only have about a one month shelf life. The USDA says that if they're under eight weeks old, they're too frail because they don't have any kind of an immune system. After they're 12 weeks old, USDA says they're too dangerous because they can take a finger off a child. So you've got about an eight to 12 week window. And that means they're constantly breeding cats, discarding them to anybody who will take them or killing them. 
and then breeding more. And so that's the practice that I'm against. And that's why all of the people who were in Tiger King saying hateful things about me hate me so much because I've brought that to public light. They've been able to say for years, this is conservation. We're saving tigers from the wild. It's no, you're not saving anything. It's all about money. Yeah. So Joe was actually breeding them to sell or breeding them for people to go and stroke or both. Right. Well, both breeding them to stroke um, for that one month window. And then if he could sell them, which his husband said over a hundred times, he drove across state lines. This was in his trial. Um, John Finley said over a hundred times he drove tigers across state lines and sold them for cash, which is illegal, but it's why the federal government can't find out when it's happening because they do it for cash. And so that's why we have a federal bill pending right now that would ban cub petting and phase out private ownership of big Mm. cats. So when this come about, the Tiger King come about, what actually happened to you personally? All of a sudden your phone went crazy. Social media went crazy. Tell me what sort of threats were being said. I I had actually posted it on YouTube and they made me take it down because it was so vile. I just recorded the first three hours of that from on my phone, the messages people left. And it was so vile that YouTube wouldn't allow it to stay online. Vimeo allowed it to stay online. So if you go to bigcatrescue.org slash Netflix, you can actually see it linked there and you can hear all of the horrible things people threatened to do to me and my family and the cats. That was the one that got me the most was people saying they wanted all the cats dead. And I'd say, why? And they say they belong in cages. And I thought, how did you watch that and not see that I'm the one person who's working harder than anybody else you will ever meet in your life to keep them from being born in cages? They didn't get that from Tiger King. They got a whole totally different narrative. How did you emotionally deal with this? Yeah. Thankfully, my my, um, my my North Star is that I believe that everything is happening exactly as it should, that everything is unfolding as it should for our greater enlightenment and for the betterment of all of us. So when it happened, I had to seriously take a, a step back and go, okay, well, what what's going to come out of this? Because it better be a doozy. And I think it is. I think The biggest challenge I had before Tiger King when I would go and lobby for a bill to ban cub petting and private ownership is that no member of Congress believed that this was a problem. They've never heard of it before. And now everybody knows what a huge problem it is. So I think that that's going to be the good thing that finally gets this bill across the Mm. line. But how did you personally deal with this? That's what I want to get to the bottom of. Because if my phone rang from random people sending me death threats, not sure how I would deal with it. Do you have a tight family around you to understand what's going on? I think it was harder on them. And if you think about that for a minute, if people were making all of those horrible accusations against you, and I mean, those exact, exact um, accusations against you, you're no more guilty of any of that than I am. So it's easy for either of us to go, they just don't know what they're talking about. But if you think about how that affects the people that are closest to you and how much they want to protect you and defend you, I think it was so much harder on my family than it was on me. Mm. And you say your family, is your husband and a daughter or other people involved? I have a mother, my brother. um, My father died before this whole thing happened. He died in 2016. So he knew about Joe trying to kill me and all that kind of stuff. But um, he didn't see this 
<laughs> the way the world experienced this or anything. I think that would have been just, even harder. Just for roll him. back there. You said Joe tried to kill you. Joe and a lot of these other people had been threatening to kill me for years. And every time there was a threat that I thought to be credible, I would turn it over to the FBI. I turned it over to the local police. I tried to get a restraining order and nothing was ever done about it until the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service stumbled upon it on their own. And once they discovered it, then they called my husband and they say, your, your wife's in imminent danger. And I'm like, yeah, I've been telling you that for at least 10 years now. And what about, have you ever come face to face with Joe? I've, only, I've never spoken to him. I've only ever been in the same room with him during a deposition. You know, we had to sue him because he was using our name and telling everybody that his cub petting operation was Big Cat Rescue Entertainment. He added entertainment to the end. And he used the logo from our website and he used a Tampa phone number, even though he's from Oklahoma and just did everything he could. And then he went on Facebook and said that he had done it just so that he would ruin my name when I would go after him for these horrible things that were happening at the malls where people were paying to pet these cubs. So we got a million dollar judgment against him. And I had to go to the deposition for one time on that. And then I went, my husband had had heart surgery. So I had to go to the bankruptcy hearing because he thought, you know, once he got the judgment against him, he could just easily file bankruptcy and get it wiped off, I think. So um, I had to go to that. And then I saw him at the murder for hire trial. But in none of those cases had I ever spoken to him. I never exchanged words with him online. When the, the producers of Tiger King were trying to get me to say nasty things about him, I never would say anything nasty about him personally. So um, there was just never a feud. And that was that was my biggest thing. You know, when the media was first contacting me after Tiger King came out, they were like, tell us about this feud. And I'm like, there's no freaking feud. <laughs> <laughs> How long did the murder trial last for? I only came for the first two days, I think. Or maybe first three days, but I think it was like a three or four day thing. Maybe five days max. Um, it only took them like three hours to find him guilty, though. And, and that whole period, did that last for years? Um, we filed the lawsuit against him in 2011. And we really thought that, you know, when we filed the lawsuit, he'd just stop using our name. Yeah. But no, he doubled down on it. And he just kept kept coming back with, you know, counterclaims and all kinds of stupid stuff. And I think that we had completely won all of that by maybe 2016, 2015, somewhere around then. And then we were having to chase him through bankruptcy court. And the calls that I got, one call from Jackie Thompson and from Tiger King, you might remember her husband was Mark Thompson, the sharpshooter that Joe hired to be his bodyguard. Um, she contacted me and she said that Joe had tried to hire her husband to kill me. And then another woman, I believe in 2016 or 2017 contacted me and said that Joe had tried to hire her to kill me. And like I said, each time I turned this over to the authorities. And then in 2018, maybe Jeff Lowe had already thrown Joe off of the zoo and he and James Gerritsen called me while I was at dinner 
And I saw that it was a 407 area code. So I knew it was somebody in Oklahoma, which meant it couldn't be good news. And I didn't bother to take the call. And then when I played the recording that they left, it said something about, if you want all the dirt on Joe Exotic, you got to return this call. Well, I didn't return the call. I just sent it to our lawyer and told her, you know, do whatever you think is appropriate with this. And she was in Oklahoma. So she turned it over to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service returns the call. And <laughs> it turns out that U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the guy everybody referred to as the Chucky doll, uh, James Garrettson in Tiger King, apparently he had done something illegal with Joe about a lemur, a transfer of a lemur. And so to get out of his... Um, charge on the lemur. He said, look, I know about this situation where Joe's trying to kill this woman in Florida. And so that's how he became the, uh, what do they call it? The um, confidential informant for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And then the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service didn't want a real hitman out there in the wind. And so they introduced an undercover FBI agent for Joe to hire instead, because that way they wouldn't have to worry about whether there was going to be a real hitman coming to kill me. And then they found out months later, this was in like September, I think. Uh, I shouldn't even try to guess on the dates, but um, they found out in the fall and then the following summer they're still telling me, you know, that this hitman is out in the wind. We don't know where he is. And they finally find out that he has been paid by Joe. And that was, um, so by this time now, they've got two hitmen that he has now conspired with. And they felt like they had a big enough case that they'd be able to bring him in. Plus all of the tigers that he shot and killed. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and then his husband the turned against Carol. him. Well, you know, that was the thing. If if they had actually done the real story of yeah. what was going on, it was so much more drama and intrigue. And, you know, I mean, after the, the murder for hire hearing, he wasn't sentenced until right before Tiger King came out. So he was sentenced in like January of 2020. So there was almost a year before he had been, before we knew how long he was going to be in jail. Wow. But Amanda Green was the... I want to say attorney general, but I'm not sure if that was her role. She was like the main prosecuting person for the government. And she actually broke down in tears at the murder for hire trial saying they were so sorry that they had let this hitman so, Alan Glover slip through their fingers because they thought they had a finger on where he was. And turns out he was in the wind and they didn't know about it until it was too late. And so it was much more dangerous than what anybody who actually saw a tiger king yeah. ever would have realized. Yeah. So you, were you living in fear for eight years? I, I was, I don't know if I'd call it fear. Maybe I don't have enough good sense to be fearful. And probably that's why I'm able to do what I do. So there's different personality tests that you can take that kind of lump you into different yeah. things. And my Enneagram is that I'm an Enneagram eight which means I'm just hardwired to protect and to challenge the status quo. And so by always being the person who was standing up for the kid in the playground who was getting bullied, you know, I'd be the one that would fight the bullies off. Or um, if an animal was being abused, like when I was 
nine years old, a neighbor was shooting at cats in the neighborhood. And I just walked right up to the steps of his house and banged on the door and threatened him with his life if he didn't stop it. And, you know, it was like, that was just who I always was is this person who would take on dangerous, um, ugly criminal type people, Mm -hmm. because I felt like if, if somebody doesn't do that, they are always going to get away with abusing others. And as a result, I don't think I, I experience fear maybe in the same way other people do, I'm which sure. is probably a good thing. It's probably a good thing, I was going to say, but I'm sure deep down, knowing that day that he got put away in prison, was that a nice feeling? I, I felt relieved that there was at least one of them off the street, but I feel like he was just, I mean, I hate to say this about anybody, but he's just dumb, and he was the easiest one for them to catch. These other guys, like Mario Tabro and... Antle, Doc Antle, those guys are freaking terrifying because they're actually intelligent people who are doing what I think to be as bad or worse than what Joe's doing. And those are the people that I think could could harm me much more quickly than Joe ever could. So there's still that threat of having them out there and having them feel like maybe emboldened by the fact that they were all kind of on the periphery of Joe's trial, and yet they never got swept into it or held accountable for their part in it. What do you think they're doing worse than what Joe was doing? I think it's much more um, intentional. I think with Joe, he just had such a huge need for people to admire him and the cubs were uh, the only way that he ever felt that he could attract people into his life and make them do the things that they would do and if you talk to them they would say and this is true of all of these cult-like situations where they use these cubs to lure people in and then they hold their power over what happens to those cats to keep the people in line by by saying, you know, I'm not going to feed your cat or I'm going to send your cat to some horrible place or I'm going to kill your cat if you don't do what I want you to do. Whereas I think the people that he modeled himself after, I believe to be, and his everybody around him says that this was the case, that he was trying to model himself after Doc Antle and Mario Tabro. So I think that that makes them a whole lot more dangerous by virtue of the fact that they have been able to keep their the people surrounding them under so much tighter control that they don't dare speak out against them. With Joe, how did you feel when he made, you know, some real deep comments about you uh, maybe killing Don Lewis, your husband? How did that make you feel at the time? Are you just thinking you're crazy or what was, what was going through your head? It's been what all of the bad guys say because they can't talk about the real issues. And if you look at the media, you can see how this has been so successful for them. If the media is saying, well, they're asking him, well, why are you breeding hundreds of cubs every year when you say you can't afford to feed the cats you have? Aren't you creating a, a situation where it's more mouths to feed? They can't talk about that. Yeah. There's no way they can justify yeah. that. And they can't even talk about conservation with any kind of legitimacy because all you need is just one biologist on the panel to be like, no, that's Mm. not true. So they can't talk about anything that is real. And so the only thing they can do is to throw out there this tragedy that happened in my family. 
and try to divert attention to all of the gory different kinds of ideas of what could have happened. And the media loves it. Every single interview I do, that's all people want to talk about. And it's been successful for these animal abusers to use that. So why wouldn't they? Does that pain you that that those conversations may be being believed by the press and people out there? if it pains me so much as it's just annoying it you know anybody can see the same document that i saw from homeland security so how is it that they think that a bunch of animal abusers or even the local sheriff's department has better intel than homeland security how's it been for you personally if you obviously you've, you've since the tiger king your fame must have jumped from being uh a lover of cats to all of a sudden to become like a a huge face around the US? I didn't recognize the difference because in Florida, in Tampa, everywhere I go, I'd have these big signs on my car that would say things like never pay to pet a cub. And so everybody knew who I was. (laughs) And if I pulled up at a one case, I pulled up at a stoplight and this huge bus pulls up next to me and everybody puts down their windows and they're all screaming out the window how much they love Big Cat Rescue because everybody loved us. And so people would chase me across parking lots, you know, which kind of freaks me out. Like it, sometimes at 11 o'clock at night, somebody's running at you in a parking lot and you're just like, I don't know if this is good. And it's somebody that wants to talk about big cats. And so that was my normal life around around the area where I lived. I didn't realize that it was this global thing until Dancing with the Stars. And part because of COVID, I had asked them if there was any way that they could save me from being on a commercial airliner. So they brought me in by a private jet to this little dinky airport that, you know, like nobody knew I was coming. And as soon as I got off the plane, people were doing the same thing that they've been doing in Tampa. And that was the first time I realized that it must have been the show that had done that because I've traveled to other places before and nobody's ever run up to me like that. Yeah. And how was that for you going on, uh, going on to Dancing with the Stars? Actually, what, did people take it, take it in the right way? How was it personally for you? It was tough. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. Those people are true athletes. <laughs> and despite me, you know, they gave me this apartment. I moved all the furniture out so that I could practice every minute that I was awake. I was practicing and I still didn't last past the third show because they could not teach me how to dance. <laughs> But the the wonderful thing about it was that they had given me so much access to the press to be able to talk about big cats, because that was what I most, you know, that was what my husband and I most thought about Tiger King was what a missed opportunity. They could have talked about how we're going to lose the tiger in the wild in the next five years if we don't stop this. But that's not what they wanted to talk about. And so getting to talk to the press about that under the guise of being there for Dancing with the Stars was a great opportunity. Good for you. Good for you. And how's it been for you with obviously the Tiger King 2 coming out? It's like nobody saw it, apparently. (laughs) I don't know if the reason that people did not uh, react to Tiger King 2 the same way they did to Tiger King 1 was because we were in such a different place as far as COVID goes. Or... If you think about what the major takeaway from Tiger King 1 was, it was people saying that I had killed Don Lewis. And when they came out in Tiger King 2 and showed clearly I did not kill Don Lewis, then all of those people who had been so wretched and hateful toward me, they couldn't talk about that show because now it made them look bad. And so I 
I don't know how much of it was timing and how much of it was people being embarrassed by the way they had behaved. Mm. Are you on social media, Carol? I am. We have a huge social media presence for Big Cat Rescue. We're on every channel you can imagine. Just look up Big Cat Rescue and you'll find us there. But when Dancing with the Stars um, had me out there, they said that I couldn't use my corporate channel. I had to use a personal channel, which I did not have. I had, well, I had a Facebook channel um, and a YouTube channel, but I didn't have like Instagram or TikTok or any of that. So I created those channels for Dancing with the Stars and I've tried to keep up with them. But the best way to find out about what's going on with any of us is Big Cat Rescue. Yeah, fantastic. And what's the future hold for you? I think I think that's my superpower, actually, is being able to see the future. And I think the way that we are going to save the tiger from extinction is by monetizing them. And when I say tiger, I'm talking about all the big cats because they're all in peril. But the tiger is one of the closer ones to being completely annihilated. And I think the only way that we ever can save these species is to make them valuable to the people who have to live next to them. And so what we've done at Big Cat Rescue is every week we put out a new immersive video that you would see in a headset where you are like, it feels like you are right there in the enclosure with the cat. And my reason for doing that and getting involved in cryptocurrencies and NFTs and all of that is because I see that as the way of setting up 360 degree internet streaming cameras in the wild where these cats live and having that stream a feed to the internet where you have to subscribe to it. And if all of the zoos were to turn themselves into immersive locations where there's no real cats being held in captivity, but you're using their equipment, their headsets, they're blowing cold air on you while you're seeing yeah. snow leopards raising their cubs in a den in the Himalayas yeah. somewhere in real time, that if that were tied to a um, cryptocurrency on the blockchain where the money is deposited directly yeah. into the wallets of the people who live next to those animals, then they all become game wardens. And you don't have the governmental corruption that's involved in trying to fund those kinds yeah. of things. Otherwise, you don't have NGOs using up most of the money yeah. for salaries and things that don't work. You have people who have to support their families who have a vested interest in mm. protecting those animals in the wild. So that's my ultimate goal is to end the practice of breeding wild cats in cages and create demand and opportunity for people to see these animals living free like they should be. Wonderful. Wonderful. Knowing what you've gone through over the last 10 years, would you go through it all again to get the exposure that you got for your cats? <laughs> if you ask me that, I'd say absolutely. If you ask my husband that, he'd say, no, 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 which goes back to what I was saying earlier. You know, it was much harder on them than it was on me. Yeah. Carol, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Well, thank you, Dodge. Yeah, I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you for your honesty. I think you're doing wonderful for the whole cat world. Um, and it's nice to hear your side of the story. Thank you so much. Yeah. Wonderful. You're a star. Take care. <laughs> Cheers. Bye-bye.